Hi, I'm Alice. I'm Dan. And welcome back to the second and final part of Theories of Consciousness. <laughs> so if you haven't watched part one of this series, I strongly recommend that you do so, or you might get a little bit lost when we're talking about these last two theories. Today, we will be looking at the Integrated Information Theory and the Higher Order Theory. So let's start out with the Integrated Information Theory, and this one was definitely the hardest theory for me to wrap my head around. It states that, and this is simplified, mind you, a system is conscious if it has information on its past and future states of being based on its present state, if the information as a whole is greater than the sum of its parts, if the information of that whole is greater than anything else that it is a part of, and if its information comes from a network. Boy oh boy, do I not know what that means. You are in good company because neither did the sophomore philosophy and psychology majors in my class who heard this. So, <laughs> this theory also uses a bit of math and Greek lettering to kind of attempt to make equations for solving for consciousness. And obviously, based off of how I phrase that, I do have a few problems with this theory, which I will be getting into later. And this is definitely the theory I disagree most with out of the four I'm presenting. However, I do think that this theory has its own merits. Yeah, fair enough. Now to unpack that mouthful of a definition, which I should say was also so heavily simplified it's not even funny. So let's start with the first part. A system is conscious if it has information on its past and future states of being based on its present state, which is confusing enough as it is. In this case, this system in question is the brain, and I like to think of the information on its past and future states through the analogy of chess. For example, if we look at the bishop, it can only move diagonally along white or black squares on a chessboard, depending on where it starts. So in terms of knowing where this bishop was or will be, we know that a bishop on a black square would never have been on or get to a white square. Yeehaw! So that rules out half the chessboard. Pretty good odds. <laughs> Yeehaw! We've gone from 1 in 100 odds to 1 in 50, or technically 1 in 64 to 1 in 32, if you want to be really... <laughs> picky about it. Yeah. So we also know that since the bishop can only move along a diagonal, that limits the number of squares that it could have come from, as well as the places it can go, since it can't just appear on any black square that it wants to. And so that still leaves us with quite a few squares left on the board, but we've narrowed down the possibilities of where this bishop was and where it could be next. The process is similar to neurons in the brain. Neurons have loads of connection, like this bishop, to pass information through. But it's not like one neuron is connected to literally every other neuron in the brain and in the nervous system. So when trying to figure out where certain information is going, scientists can look at the connections between the active neurons, sending the message to determine where that message might have come from and where that message might go next. Incredible that my brain has some type of organization system when it does not show that to me at all. <laughs> Given that the organization system, in quotes here, is organized chaos, it makes incredible sense if you think about it. <laughs> mm. Or rather, as you think about it, since we're dealing with the consciousness of processes. Well, additionally, context clues like the region of the brain that is active, such as the parts that deal with sight or smell or deductive reasoning and etc. etc. These can all help narrow down the possibilities of where messages come from and go even further. Now you might be wondering, but this is supposed to relate to the entire brain, so how the heck does one neuron or one region getting information make the entire brain conscious? 
I will get into the semantics of the whole parts of the brain versus the whole of it in just a moment, but in relation to the information on the system part, think about it as we're tracking the whole brain. If there's activity in the side area of the brain, one might expect the motor section to light up with activity next because of the ball that you just registered coming right at your face. Haha, <laughs> think fast! One section's activity influences the other, but it affects the whole system of the brain. What's active and what's not. Hmm. This is the part of the integrated information theory that explains why the information has to come from a network. Our neurons make up that network, and together they give us the information that makes the brain conscious. Now to go into the whole, whole is greater than the sum of its parts bit. This can be difficult to wrap your head around at first, especially because of some of the implications. This basically states that our brains are conscious because they are able to interpret more than the individual parts of the brain, such as the thalamus or the parietal lobe, or basically any other brain-sounding area that you can think of, and the brain is able to interpret more than the rest of our body. Because our neurons are so interconnected, taking information separately from just the visual center of the brain, just the motor section of the brain, etc., etc., wouldn't give you the full picture that you get when everything is working together. So kind of like how the ingredients of a cake are like all apart are just very different than like when you put them all together. Depending on the complexity of the cake, then it, the order you put them in does matter. Uh, precisely. And so when you have a full cake versus the sum of its parts, I'm just going to say cake probably tastes a little bit more delicious than just baking soda or just yeast or just vanilla extract. Haha, <laughs> I'm just practically Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> well, going back to my earlier example, if you had those parts separated, you'd probably just get hit by that ball coming at your face. I mean, yeah, I would. Regardless. <laughs> but at least when your parts are connected together, you might try to react to it just a little bit. <laughs> and again, thinking of the brain as a chessboard and the parts of the brain as different pieces, such as the bishop, imagine if the only information each piece got was its own position on the board. Now it could go anywhere it wanted to. But that also means that we have even more possibilities of where it could go and therefore less certainty. In the example that I was going through earlier, the bishop might be able to go to a dozen different locations on its own, whereas with the rest of the pieces on the board, we can narrow it down to the bishop only being able to travel, say, to four squares. And to me, one in 12 seems like a much lower probability of guessing something correctly than one in four. It's about an 8.3% chance versus 25% chance. Precisely. So since we have more information, when the brain works as a system about where everything's going to go and what it's going to do, as well as where things have gone and what they have done, we have more certainty of that information, and therefore, the brain is more conscious as a whole. But in that case, why the heck don't we consider the body to be conscious? Well, in this case, let's take the nervous system out of our body, the full thing. And without that, the body can't really do much. Aside from the fact that our heart would stop beating and we'd see cell life functions, we couldn't move or see anything or go anywhere because neurons control all of that. That's why when a person is brain dead, there's no way to bring them back to life with something like a defibrillator or anything of the sort. So our body doesn't really add to our consciousness or the information of where things will go and how in that way. I mean, but don't our touch sensors and stuff add information though? 
since those are a part of our nervous system, it all checks out. Yeah, but, like, is the nervous system part of the neural network? Yes, because it is nervous and neural. And yeah, so they all then... connect. So they all do connect um, through the spinal cord and up into the brain. And some of them go right up into the brain. And so similar to our vision systems and everything like that, it is the neurons that are telling the muscles when and where to fire and how to move, as well as taking in all of the sensory input and making decisions based off of that. And so when you do count our full nervous system and our full nervous skeleton into that consciousness, then absolutely yes. Yeah, so, but that's a part of our body. But when you consider the nervous system as a whole versus our body as a whole. So for example, our muscles don't add anything to it. Our bones don't add anything to it. Our flesh doesn't add anything to it versus yeah. the neurons themselves. It was just, it seemed like with saying like, yeah, the body doesn't have it. It's like people do consider the brain it's and the nervous take... system separate. Then the nervous system is part of your brain. Exactly. So if we do consider the nervous system as a whole, since the whole does need to be greater than the sum of its parts, um, the no information of like, say, your blood and your bones and those parts of your body, plus the information of the brain and the entire nervous system network, still equals the information of the brain and the nervous system network. So that makes the information of the brain and the body, or, you know, the nervous system in the body, still equal to the information of the nervous system, and therefore not greater than the sum of its parts. And that right there was the most difficult thing to get scientific papers to explain clearly when I learned this shite. <laughs> Rip. It took probably about a week for the teacher to explain that, and that alone. And this was a five-week class. <laughs> oh. So, I did mention implications, though, and this is why this theory gets a little scary if it's true. If we found a way to connect our brains with each other, we would no longer be conscious. <laughs> well, I mean, you would still be conscious. Like, it's not like you're not conscious anymore. It's just that you... You are now part of a greater consciousness that is its own consciousness, and you can now not feel separately conscious according to this theory. Well, yeah, but then it's still like... It's not you. It's not... not you anymore, and it's a new it. You might be a part of an it. But it is no longer you. You are no longer in control of your body or anything that happens to you in that You are nature. no longer fully in charge of what it is. Besides, given that it is a new you, uh, technically the you that you know is not in charge at all. And this is honestly one of my biggest qualms with the theory. Mm -hmm. Because it basically implies a hive mind mentality. Where if you manage to connect your brain with someone else's brain, neither of you have any consciousness at all. And now it is the connection that has the full consciousness of the entire system. You are now a mere pawn in its game and have absolutely no control or thought or feeling. It is now just the higher collective. This is where the problem becomes if you try and upload your consciousness onto the internet. Yeah, basically according to this theory it would become one super conscious and that does not sound like it would go well. <laughs> this whole thing kind of works out because the information of two brains together is kind of better than two brains separately. You know, similar to the two heads are better than one. So now these two consciousnesses become one, kind of as we were talking about. So. If that were the case, we'd basically pull um, a version of a Steven Universe and create a whole new conscious en entity similar to Garnet. And we ourselves would no longer be conscious, which is still, I think, a step up from Steven Universe. Which is uh, slightly terrifying of an implication to me. <laughs> 
And, again, I definitely find some merits in this theory, but I also think there are a few drawbacks to it. Like, the whole two brains would then become one collective conscious if they were connected together. I don't think that would be entirely how that works. Anyway, starting with the merits... For one, this theory can properly explain why a part of our brain called the cerebellum is not conscious, but rather part of a conscious system. A lot of other theories basically accidentally imply, or straight out imply, that it is the cerebellum itself that makes someone conscious, which I personally don't agree with, especially given that there was a case of a 24-year-old woman who was found to be missing her entire cerebellum, and even though she did have some issues with things like balance, she could still walk, talk, and function like a pretty relatively normal human being and definitely had consciousness. Uh, just real quick, like, what is a cerebellum? Like, what does it do? What is it responsible for? That kind of thing. Yeah, so the cerebellum is in charge of most of our motor behaviors and our language. So everything like our balance and how we move and being able to walk and talk and pretty much all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. It tends to be the most active part of our brain with the most neuron actions and the greatest neuronal connections. So a lot of other theories run into the problem that since the cerebellum is the most active, why wouldn't it be more conscious than the other parts of the brain? Or why wouldn't it be the center of consciousness, if you were? Mm. So I will give the integrated information theory props for finally being able to dispel that since the other parts of the brain and the nervous system make the thing as a whole, you know, more functional than just the cerebellum, because we do a bit more than just walking and talking, if you ask me. <laughs> we also have yeah. anxiety and thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> it is also the only theory to have some solid math behind it, which calculates the consciousness of a system. So basically, it mathematically proves why the brain is more conscious than the body, as well as, you know, the parts of the brain itself. So the whole parts versus whole is mathematically calculated out. There are more than a few issues, though such as the fact that, despite there being math, you'll notice a definite lack of actual scientific experiments that I mentioned in the benefits and support. There is potential for these experiments, but they don't really exist, let alone give conclusive results. Eh, this is why psychology is called a soft science. However, cognitive science is not, so they really need to step up. Yeah, well... So again, we are back to the whole correlation and not causation argument, and even the guy who made this theory admits that it does need more science to back it. I mean, at least he admits it, man. Like, some oh, academic yeah. <laughs> types are like, I could never be wrong. Oh dear lord, they are the worst. <laughs> they miss the entire point of science when they do that, as science is technically only giving the answer based off of what we know now, not the definitive answer of this is definitely how it happened. Science yeah. is made to be overruled, y'all. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that Einstein literally prepared for his stuff to be kind of like debunked or changed. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, and that's the smart way to go about it. Mm -hmm. Back to the integrated information theory. Once again, this theory does not answer what consciousness really is, let alone if these correlations mean anything more. Like, great. Our brain is the one doing the thinking and making the whole consciousness stuff. But is that really a revelation? Well, it would be to the ancient Egyptians who thought the heart was responsible for thought. That is fair, but I will counter that by saying that this theory was made in the 2000s. And I think we knew that the brain was responsible for consciousness and, you know, our state of being prior to 2000. Okay. People still think the Earth is flat. Okay, I'm talking about the scientific community. The scientific community knows. <laughs> 
what could be a revelation to some people has already been around for decades. Let's be honest here. Yeah. Or, you know, centuries, like the Flat Earthers. Honestly, I think it's more than centuries. I think it's like millennia. At this point, yeah. Anyway, I also didn't get too much into it, but the integrated information theory does get a bit philosophical in how consciousness arises and what it is. Props to it. None of the other theories do that. Yeah. The only issue is that there's basically no scientific or mathematical link between these two concepts, and when I read these two sections uh, in the paper on this, it felt incredibly disjointed. It felt like there was just a middle segue of here's the philosophical pillars of that, and now back to the math that has nothing to do with it. I should also mention that this particular paper was actually written by the guy who founded this theory, so it's basically as close to the source material as you can possibly get. Bro, that's a straight-up primary source. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> In conclusion, while this theory does the best job of attempting to marry the philosophy of what it is to be conscious and the science of how does consciousness exist, it still falls very short of the mark and definitely has more than a few problems with the way that it approaches the science part of things. Props for using math, but math does not automatically mean correct, as yeah. all of my calculations go. <laughs> <laughs> Me and calculus, like, what on earth? How did I get this number? Me and AP Calc. <laughs> you tried, but we give no points. <laughs> you did it all wrong. I was like, ah, thanks. You tried, okay. but the try was wrong, so zero points. <laughs> ah, man. <laughs> that one was the four almost five page, absolutely complicated, so hard to get your brain around theory. The higher order theory, which is the final theory, is, in my opinion, much easier to understand and much simpler to explain, too. Hmm. The higher order theory is rather a collection of multiple theories that are all tied together by a loose definition. And that definition is that consciousness comes from interpreting neuron firing as something, whether it be words, colors, or actions. The higher order part of this comes from the definitions first and second order. First order in this case would be the neuron firing, which is the first part of the definition. So physiologically speaking, this just means that a neuron received a signal, usually from another neuron, and fired that signal off somewhere else. Into the void. Exactly. The second order is interpreting what that neuron meant. Our brain is basically just a bundle of these neurons, yet we can interpret the world around us through sounds, smells, colors, and motion, just to name a few things. The second your brain processes that neuron firing and says, oh, I saw something blue, or something just brushed my arm, you are having a second order thought and are therefore conscious. So the second order versus first order is kind of similar to the blind sight principle from before. So like the Precisely. first order is the blind sight and this one is like the actually thinking about exactly. it. Exactly. And so the whole neuron firing stuff could technically be something that you're not really conscious of but happened. But once you see it, you're like, ah, yes, conscious thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, if you interpret neurons firing as something, anything at all, you are conscious. Great news for my dog. Precisely. Now, some of these theories more explicitly support other consciousness theories that we've already discussed, like the global neuronal workspace theory and recurrent processing theory that I talked about in the first part. These theories branch off by saying, this interpretation of signals is what makes us conscious, and it happens through the recurrent processing method of these executive areas talking with the smaller individual neurons or something of the sort. Mm. Um, that would be the recurrent processing one where it combines both recurrent processing and higher order theory to mesh and make a new kind of weird conglomeration child. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. 
Now, I view this set of theories as more often an add-on to other theories of consciousness rather than a standalone theory. And this is also because the papers on this are rather wishy-washy. Uh, a lot of the terminology comes down to not this per se, but something like it. And that was a prominent pattern that I found throughout these many theories. That's m just me trying to explain anything. It's <laughs> like, hmm, I'm not totally sure, or if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, unlike a lot of what you say, there's a lack of hard evidence to the higher order theories. You have high standards for me. <laughs> Since there is a lack of hard evidence, a lot of experiments and examples that these higher order theory papers bring up are in support of theories like global neuronal workspace and recurrent processing, but not the higher order theory itself. And again, as I talked about in part one, some of the experiments that support global neuronal workspace theory and recurrent processing theory aren't the most solid evidence anyway. Hmm. There's also the fact that according to this definition, some computers and robots are already conscious since they interpret the ones and zeros of data into actual colors and objects and react based upon that. I mean, I think that would be pretty much all computers because Exactly. And like, I it's not even most or some, it's all. Exactly. And I don't really feel as if that's fully correct because the bar feels a little too low for consciousness, especially given the fact that we have programmed computers and they only behave within set parameters. Well, I wonder if, like, consciousness is kind of a similar thing to, like, what what's a mountain versus a hill. It's like, there's kind of, you don't... There is a gray area, yeah. for sure, but I feel like even here... The computers, in even the most basic cases, should not be able to clear that. Yeah. Based off of how simple the parameters can be. I'm just saying, like, it is kind of probably, like, more of a gray area than Exact oh, people absolutely. think. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I still feel that, even despite the gray area, this is way too low. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I do think that higher order theory has its place as a contributor but I do not think that it can stand on its own in any way as it is. Mm -hmm. So what have we learned from all of this? Basically that scientists are still pretty clueless about what consciousness is. <laughs> Me too, they aren't special. <laughs> Fair enough. And there are some great theories out there, but none of them really explain what consciousness feels like, other than our general observations in our own lives and the fact that alcoholism rates are going up. Mm. <laughs> so there is a general agreement that animals are conscious to some degree, and some theories put consciousness on a gradient, which I definitely agree with. Yeah. But in the end, every theory that I mentioned really seems to fall just short of the mark when it comes to marrying the qualification and quantification of science. Or basically, the how does it feel and what is it, which often comes with soft sciences like psychology, and the quantification of the hard data and this is the numbers and this is the exact process, which is more akin to what you see in cognitive science and neuroscience. Mm -hmm. So what's my take on all of this? I agree, consciousness is definitely a gradient. And it is certainly present in most, if not all, animals to at least some degree. It likely needs a brain or at least some form of internal communication system to be more than just a little bit conscious. So that really rules out a single bacteria's ability to be really just more than barely on the brink of consciousness in any way similar to what the higher order theory would have us think. And as a system, however, there might actually be some consciousness out there, especially in bacteria, depending on the species. Okay, but like, what about 
forests, because I know that this isn't super common knowledge, but forests are like connected with like fungal networks through the roots and just like below the ground and stuff. And it spreads information like, oh, there's like something happening here or oh, there's a drought in this area. Can you send water? All that stuff. So would this be considered consciousness as well? Depending on the theory that you go with, yes. Technically speaking, though, it is a very nuanced difference and has to do with the theory that some people go off of. Because there are some theories that say that any eukaryotic cell, uh, which does include most bacteria, mm. is at least some level conscious. And obviously plants are eukaryotic cells, as are animals. Mm. And so therefore, there would be consciousness within at least trees, especially trees with potentially root-to-root um, -root connections. Yeah. But when it comes to acting as a conglomeration versus a community, that is where the difference lies. For example, I'm not part of a conscious conglomeration with other people just because I might be able to send a virtual hug over text because someone needs, you know, a bit of a pick-me-up for their day or I'm able to help them with their homework. It doesn't work in that way where, for example, like, I could send some water over to a friend. Like, I give you water when you come over. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we are part of one conscious entity. So it all depends on how a person views it and which kind of scientific rules you're going with. So the best answer in long and short is yes and no. <laughs> going back to what consciousness itself is, um, consciousness definitely has to do with the back and forth communication of different parts of the brain. And I do think that it has more to do with our nervous system, which involves everything from our spinal cord to the tips of our fingers, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, rather than just the body as a whole with like the muscle and the bones and the sinews, that sort of thing. Especially based on the dreams and the insane hallucinations that our mind can conjure up. And sleep paralysis. Don't even get me started on that. My condolences to everyone else who has that. <laughs> <laughs> That's rough. <sighs> And back to consciousness, I do think that there will be a way to scientifically measure and prove what consciousness is. But I am very hesitant to say that the solution will come even in my lifetime. If ever. Given, given humans, yeah. <laughs> yeah? And it will definitely take some serious breakthrough marrying philosophy and science to do this, as both are equally important players in this pursuit. Mm-hmm. So, that was the much lengthier part two to our <laughs> theories of consciousness. I hope you enjoyed rather than having this week off in a break. And we will be back to our normal schedule next week. Yep. Thanks for listening, y'all. And we'll catch you next time.